hearts are mortgaged and our minds are media slaves. The world is warming up as we are Mother Nature's wage. Just inside, she is taking to the streets to release her secret rage. Just inside. Welcome to the Convergence on Voice America. This is your series host, Dr. Kurt Johnson of the Inner Spiritual Dialogue Network, Unity Earth, and the Light on Light Press. Now, this is a Voice America special that we think is quite super special. So the first thing I'm going to do is tell you what we're all doing here. As you've learned from the title of the program, Global Unit of Healing, Toward a world that works for all, we're here to talk about going global, how our species can go global in a healthy and successful way, how we can really make that transformative ideal possible. And what brings us together is that all of our guests have written inspiring books about it. Now, the last time we were together on The Convergence, we also shared on a similar theme our series on our moment of choice evolutionary visions, and hope for the future. Another book about how the world goes global, from the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, a book that won both a Gold Nautilus Award and a COVR Visionaries Award. And over 50,000 listeners on Voice America have enjoyed that series of shows and their insights and inspirations. So on this special, we're so pleased to have 10 guests sometimes joining in pairs, each with an important perspective on what it means for our world to go global successfully. We have Drs. Gene Houston and Annalise Smitsman, the authors of the just-released book, The Future Humans Trilogy. And we have Dr. David Corton, author of the books The Great Turning, When Corporations Rule the World, Change the Story, Change the Future, and other well-known books. And we have Dr. Rianne Eisler, author of the books Nurturing Our Humanity and The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, along with many of her other well-known books. And we're also welcoming Dr. David Sloan Wilson, who is the author of This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, along with his other books. And with Dr. Wilson, Dr. Paul Atkins, Now, they are co-authors of the book Pro-Social, Using Evolutionary Science to Build a Productive, Equitable, and Collaborative Groups. And we have Dr. Richard Clugston, who is author of Ethics, Values, and the New United Nations Development Agenda. And we have Dr. Glenn Martin, who is the author of The Earth Constitution Solution, Design for a Living Planet. And with us also, we have Dr. Elena Mustakova, author of Global Unit of Healing, Integral Skills for Personal and Collective Transformation, the new book from our Light on Light Press in August. And the forward of this book is by the revered founder of the Integral Vision and author of over 20 books in 35 languages, Ken Wilbur. And we've actually framed our own preparation for this discussion around Ken Wilber's foreword 
to global unit of healing, where he summarizes more about our global journey toward wholeness now with this famous sequence for worldwide transformative change. So I'm going to go over in a moment now to each of our guests. So I'm going to conclude this introduction by briefly summarizing Ken Wilber's now famous sequence about our global transformation. And it's very short, and it completely sets the stage for our discussion. The sequence is waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up, linking up, and lifting up. Now, Wilbur began with waking up and growing up back in about 2017, and here and various colleagues have added to the rest since. And what they mean is this. Waking up is to our divine nature and our full moral capacity. Growing up is creating a world that reflects those heart values. Cleaning up is healing, reconciliation, and shadow work. Showing up is activism and speaking truth to power. Linking up is creating cooperative and synergetic work together. And lifting up is co-energizing and co-inspiring. And to this, in the forward to Global Unit of Healing, Wilbur now elaborates opening up. A very simple idea, but so important to where we're going with our future. Opening up is opening up completely new lines of development. That is, opening up new paradigms, dramatic new leaps into a positive future. So we're starting with this context from Ken Wilbur about wholeness and opening new lines of development. So I'll follow with introducing each of our guests who will each take a turn about the directions that they are advising for our world's future and around which they've jumped into the discussion from Ken Wilber's inspiring forward to global unitive healing. So thanks so much. And to start off, over to Ken Wilber. Wholeness, that's W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, is a trait or characteristic that many people today value. It's generally understood to be the opposite of things like partialness or fragmentation or brokenness, and embracing it is often called taking a holistic approach. That's H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. Now, I agree that taking a holistic approach of wholeness is a very good idea, but what I'd like to point out here is that there are actually several different types of wholeness or holistic approaches and I'm going to point out five different types. So if you want to take a holistic approach to a genuine wholeness, you'll be able to include all of the various areas of a real wholeness and thus be truly holistic in your approach. I call these five various areas of wholeness waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up, and opening up. All five of those areas are truly important for a real wholeness in our lives. I'm just going to run through each of them and describe them very briefly so you get an idea of what each of them is actually all about. Waking up is probably a type of wholeness that many of you have heard of. It's often referred to as enlightenment, awakening, metamorphosis, fauna, satori, the great liberation, the supreme identity. It technically means waking up from our everyday reality 
to a supreme or ultimate reality where we switch our identity from being one with our skin encapsulated ego to being one with everything, one with the universe, often called a cosmic consciousness. That's a very big wholeness. But notice that oneness, that wholeness, will not tell us anything about growing up or the major stages of growth that our relative self develops and evolves through. These stages of growing up were only discovered very recently, about a hundred years ago, and thus they are found in none of the world's great religious traditions, so they're relatively new and unknown to many people. Research has indicated that these stages, there are around a half dozen of them, move from initial stages that are very self-centered, narcissistic, or egocentric. They then expand from self-centered to group-centered. They move from egocentric to ethnocentric stages of development. These have a very us-versus-them attitude, and this divisiveness means that these stages are often ethnocentric in a very negative sense as well. They are often the source of racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, xenophobia, and so on. It's only when development moves to the next higher level, the rational world-centric stage, that identity expands from ethnocentric, or group-focused, to world-centric, or universally focused. And identity expands from group-focused to all groups, or all humans. And thus there arises a desire to treat all people fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. Historically, this happened very recently, only around 200 to 300 years ago, with the rise of the Western Enlightenment. This is why we had slavery until only around 200 years ago. Virtually all cultures, including those of the great religions, originally had slavery. As the brilliant black public intellectual Thomas Sowell put it, Christian monasteries had slaves, Buddhist monasteries had slaves. Virtually all cultures did until some of them moved from their own ethnocentric stages, whose us versus them attitude had generated slavery in the first place, to these relatively new world-centric stages, which sought universal freedom for all humans, again, only around 200 years ago. This was because of the wholeness that growing up provided. The stages of growing up, moving from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric, contain successively larger self-identities, moving from me to us to all of us. And thus our morality also grew and expanded through those stages. This is why it was only when humans reached the highest or world-centric of those stages just a few hundred years ago, after being on this planet for 300,000 years, did we finally decide to get rid of slavery. Human beings still grow and develop through those major stages, and they do so in the same order that they originally developed, egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric, each stage being an increase in wholeness. So that's the holism that a growing up offers us today. And notice that in understanding the actual stages of growing up, their actual structure, such as being ethnocentric, is not a wholeness found in any of the waking up traditions. So then we have cleaning up. 
This is the wholeness offered by psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and other types of treatment that offer the wholeness of uniting a psyche that is limited and broken by dissociating or splitting or repressing some amount of shadow material and thus reducing its own identity to a much smaller and fragmented persona. The aim of various types of cleaning up therapies is to reunite the persona and the shadow so as to give a whole and healthy psyche. This is a type of wholeness that is not found in either growing up or waking up. Indeed, all five types of wholeness are relatively independent. Discovering the wholeness of any one area will not tell you anything about the wholeness of a different area, which is why you need to make an effort to include all of them. This definitely includes showing up. Showing up means to include, or show up for, all of the major important perspectives and dimensions that human have access to. Notice, for example, the first, second, and third person pronouns found in all major human languages. The fact that they are so universally present means they must indeed be important perspectives. But notice how many of our approaches to reality pick only one or two of them as being important. Thus, the field of consciousness studies, for example, divides its major approaches into only two different schools. The first person approaches, which say consciousness is the product of first person realities, like I, me, mine, and thus can be known through approaches like introspection. And the third person approaches means, third person means objects like it or its, and thus can be known through standard third person scientific approaches, fMRIs or PET scans. But surely there are very important realities in both approaches, in all three approaches. After all, all three of them are included in all major human languages the world over. There must be an important reason. The point of showing up is to include all of these perspectives in an approach that gives you a true wholeness of consciousness, and not just a part of it. The same thing goes for opening up which refers to opening up to all of our multiple intelligences. Many people don't realize that human beings don't have just one major intelligence, usually called cognitive intelligence and measured by the all-important IQ test. We rather have upwards of a dozen or so multiple intelligence. And if you don't like the notion of multiple intelligences, you can simply think of these as multiple capacities. But in addition to cognitive intelligence, we have an emotional intelligence, moral intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, spiritual intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence, mathematical intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, and musical intelligence, among several others. The point about opening up is that not only are few people awake to, or opened up to, all of their multiple intelligences, Few people even realize that they have them. All of them are just a few of them. This comes as a surprise to most people. So one of the things that we want to be aware of, and one of the things that forms a new type of wholeness itself, is to be aware of the full spectrum of intelligences or true capacities that we have available to us. So those are five approaches to wholeness, each one of which is quite different but each of which adds another truly important aspect to a real and genuine wholeness. 
a truly holistic approach to reality. So I recommend you remember all five of them. Waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up, and opening up. This is Ken. Please take care. So thanks, Ken Wilbur, for your evocative forward to global unit of healing. Concerning our ongoing evolution toward wholeness and our opening up entirely new frontiers in our cultural evolution, it really sets the stage for this discussion. So to continue, we're going to go next to Drs. Gene Houston and Anilo Smitsman, the authors of the Inspiring Future Humans Trilogy, which was launched just recently in July. So, Gene and Annalise, welcome to The Convergence. And especially following the launch of your new Future Humans trilogy, The Quest of Rose, The Cosmic Keys of Our Future Becoming. Congratulations on the recent launch, which was an inspiring program. Future Humans is exactly what we're talking about in this program's emphasis. So tell us about the book, and in that context, your vision for all of us as future humans. Thank you so much, Kurt. And, well, yes, it's true. We, we have, uh, Annalise and I have been very happily surprised with the considerable success <laughs> since the early launch of the first book of uh, our Future Humans trilogy last week. And I think it is ultimately a, really, a real testimony that this is the time when a new human or a future human is emerging, just like when we are that early little fertilized cell, you know, so tiny, a little dot, and out of that dot grows this hugeness that is our humanity. Well, similarly, um, a, it's as if a not only is a future, we are dotted with future humans within ourselves that may be emerging into something extraordinary is something extraordinary. Um, you know, for many, many years, I have studied the, uh, the changes in civilizations and the changes in an era, especially our own. And I find that during times of dislocation and breakdown, often they are preceded, they're preceded by that and they are followed by Renaissance. That wonderful word in Italian, rinascita, rinascita, the renewal, renaissance, in which a whole new order of a new kind of template for humanity in creativity, ideas, inventions. I believe that we are at that point of renewal. Now, what often happens that is in times of breakdown times of deconstruction are also times of reconstruction. When our stories are changing, when our capacities are shifting, many people today are feeling themselves lost because they are yearning to be found. And so we ask in this present, great, new, unique, singularity of history. How do we go beyond the masochism of decades of toxic thoughts, releasing the brain cataracts, waking up from the bad dream, which we can no longer support any more than we can support peak oil, you know? So these are the kinds of questions that we ask. 
And at the same time, this is the time of whole new possibilities, Renaissance possibilities, seeing, experiencing, relating, feeling, and even being the world we wish to inhabit. But it's not just for ourselves alone. This is the time of co-arising, co-arising with the earth herself in a whole new way as she too goes through a radical process of death and self-renewal in ways that we don't know the outcomes for. How will she balance herself? What are the consequences of this for human life in the most interesting, the most dangerous, and also for us, the most courageous time in human history. And what we have found is that when people read our future trilogy, it's as if these future codes begin to emerge. These code, future codes that were late in us begin to emerge, begin to activate us. And we become, as I say, resonant to whole new possibilities of seeing, relating, experiencing, creating, and even becoming the world that we wish to inhabit. Oh, Anna Luz, please share some of your remarkable experience of what it means to be one of these emerging future humans and the consciousness states of the future humans. Thank you so much, Jean. Yes, it's my pleasure to share. And thank you, Kurt, for hosting us for this very important topic. What we are featuring in, these, in our Future Humans trilogy is the stories and the responses and the consciousness states and the kind of creativity that we are seeing in these emerging future humans. And what is remarkable about these future humans, which really is all of us in the process of becoming, is a whole new way of responding to crisis, is a whole new way of transforming. So it is as if the coding that Jean is speaking of is a coding of a higher order of reality, or we could even say a deeper order of reality that is so deeply rooted in wholeness and in unity. And that's when the crisis is really uh, increasing, when the challenges are increasing, when people may feel like it's too much, I want to give up. We get more creative in a generative way rather than a degenerative way. And in so doing, we can see that the future humans are truly the, the kind of the path makers of a new paradigm, a new pattern. And the pattern that they are embodying and, and infusing into our world is a pattern of deep co-creativity, deep collaboration, curiosity, and this amazing capacity for renewal, for self-transformation from the future. And this is essential because the way that future humans are activating that capacity for healing, that deeper evolutionary coherence is from this kind of coding of this new era, is from these future consciousness states, potentials and possibilities. And in so doing in our book, we take quite a radical position about the nature of time itself. Mm -hmm. So what we are really saying is that the future is present now. 
uh, and that we all can access the presence of the future through our imaginal states. And it's these imaginal capacities that are so beautifully enhanced in the future humans and within ourselves. What we can see then as well, that in times of breakdown and illness, that there is a deeper immune response to that which we may call a disease or even a viral pattern. And that the nature of that immune response, even we could say of time itself, of Gaia herself, is enhanced capacity to learn, the capacity to restructure from a higher order of reality, the capacity in the middle of crisis to develop whole new evolutionary capacities, the capacity also to link up. And this is a critical uh, quality of what we're seeing in a metamorphic transformation process, just like the caterpillar transforming into the butterfly. There is a critical state in which the imaginal disks that hold the future coding of the butterfly have to link up in order to form the imaginal cells which then will be further cohering and linking up to form the imaginal organs that now start to develop the butterfly body and that butterfly capacity. And what we are talking about in our book is how that also has to happen, not just at the individual, therefore at a new understanding of global, of unprecedented new forms of cooperation and collaboration between humans and nature. I think, very, yeah, I think a very important part of this, which you've beautifully expressed, is that we are the cosmos or a fractal of the cosmos incarnate in a, what should we call it, a biodegradable space-time suit, you know, and that we thus have access to cosmic knowing. We have access through initially our imagination but that the imagination goes deeper and becomes the imaginal. The imaginal are the coded potencies that are waiting for us as part of our co-investigation with the universe of which we are a part. So that this book is radically uh, different, very, very, it's been called radically original in turning the page of personal and cultural history into a whole new template an optimal template, what, Hayden, what um, Plato referred to as the eidos, the divine ideas or the cosmic ideas that arise in us in a time of emergence through emergency, a time in which, as I say, we are that coded being that is birthing ourselves into profoundly new ways of being, seeing, doing, and in which it creates revolutions in our constitutions, in our governance, and ultimately in the ways we see ourselves and each other. Beautiful. And I'd love to weave a little further on that about the constitutions, as you mentioned, because what we're exploring also in the trilogy is that life itself, when we're looking at the informational architecture of our universe, consciousness, and life, that you could say that life itself is a living constitution. <laughs> so that when we start to understand the constitutional informational architecture of reality, and we now apply that to the redesign of our governance, of our educational system, and very important, our economic, political, and financial systems, 
that it holds the keys how to now really develop, grow, and evolve our world from wholeness, from unity, in diversity, and in a matter that is evolutionary coherent, and which is very, very different from the way we've been growing and developing our societies um, for not just centuries, but millennia, which is by competition, <laughs> uh, dualized systems, exponential growth models, and by decoupling our rootedness with the wisdom of life. You know, years ago, I met Buckminster Fuller, and I would go to him with problems and complaints. And he would say, oh, Jane, don't waste your time and, you know, trashing others. Build a better model. And that is what I think, friends, is what we are doing in these, this trilogy. We are building better models through the recognition that we are agents of the great modeling genius of the universe herself. Well, thank you so much, Drs. Jean Houston and Annalise Smitsman. And as you've so well framed, we are at a global inflection point, truly a moment of choice. So we're going to take a break for just a moment now for a short message from the publisher Simon & Schuster, Beyond Words, with a quick note about the evolutionary leaders Nautilus and COVR award-winning book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Well, welcome back to The Convergent. This is your host, Dr. Kurt Johnson. We're going to hear next Dr. David Corton, so well known for his books, The Great Turning, When Corporations Rule the World, 
and change the story, change the future. So over to David Corton. Thank you, Kurt. Delighted to join you in this discussion, exploring the implications of humanity's great turning to an interconnected, interdependent world. Our human future depends on learning to think globally while acting locally. A profound challenge that calls us to honor indigenous wisdom, ethical teachings of the world's great religions, and observations at the leading edge of science. I was born to a world in which most people lived in extreme local isolation. My family owned a successful retail store in a small town in the northwest United States. As the eldest son, I assumed I would one day inherit the business as my father inherited it from his parents. I assumed the business would take me to other parts of the United States, but saw no reason I would ever want to travel beyond our national borders. But after graduating from college, my life suddenly globalized, as life for people all around the world was beginning to do. That was the 1960s. The experiences that followed connected me with people in Asia and Africa whose lives were far more isolated than mine had been. Many lived on and from the land much as their ancestors had done for thousands of years. They traveled by foot or animal and subsisted on what they produced locally with little or no communication beyond their immediate neighbors. This, in fact, was how most of the world's people then lived. Today, just 60 years later, within the lifetime of my generation, we are globally interconnected and interdependent in ways we could scarcely have imagined in the 1960s. Even many of the world's poorest now have internet access. Many of us routinely meet in daily global web conversations. We depend on the products of complex global supply chains controlled by transnational corporations shipping massive flows of goods around the world. We routinely fly thousands of miles at near the speed of sound for short meetings and vacations. We are suddenly a truly interdependent global species with extraordinary possibilities. Yet I've come to realize that many of the people I encountered in my youth led happier, more fulfilling lives than their children and grandchildren experience today. And the human species at that time did not face a growing threat of self-extinction. Our current human reality is summed up in two global statistics. The first relates to the environment. According to estimates of the Global Footprint Network, it would take 1.6 Earths to sustain current human consumption, even with the reduction imposed by COVID-19. We have only one Earth. The rest of our consumption comes at the expense of Earth's continued ability to sustain life. The second statistic relates to extreme and growing inequality. According to Oxfam, in 2019, the combined financial assets of the world's 26 richest billionaires were greater than the total assets of the poorest half of humanity. The gap between extreme wealth and extreme poverty now grows at an accelerating pace with billions of people reduced to a daily struggle to fulfill their needs for food, water, shelter, and other essentials. 
This leads to high rates of suicide and mental illness, and to demagogues whose rule depends on promoting hatred, fear, and violence. Environmental damage and inequality are not new in the human experience. But we now take them to a global extreme that threatens human survival and the capacity of Earth to sustain life as we know it. Our errors go deep. We embrace a culture that values life only for its market price. We yield institutional power to transnational corporations dedicated to growing the financial assets of billionaires. We allow political predators to use the potentials of the cyber technology that could be uniting us, instead to divide and manipulate us. And we design our infrastructure to isolate us from one another and nature while maximizing our dependence on vehicles that burn carbon fuels. Simple adjustments will not suffice. Our future depends on deep transformation that moves beyond both the previous dominant human experience of living as isolated tribes and our current dominant experience of a world devoted to the exploitation of people and nature. We now must achieve a civilizational transformation grounded in recognition that we are living beings whose survival and well-being depend on the ability of diverse, self-organizing living communities to create and maintain the conditions essential to life. It is this ability of life that explains why Earth is unique among all the planets we know. It is because Earth's living beings make it so. We and Earth are in existential crisis because we deny our nature as intelligent, self-aware living beings with a profound ability and responsibility to care for one another. Our human future depends on learning to meet our needs while simultaneously securing the health of the regenerative systems that provide Earth and ourselves with the stable climates, clean air and water, and fertile soils on which our existence and well-being depend. If we are to fulfill our responsibility for the care of Earth, power must reside with people who care for the place where they live and the children to whom they will ultimately leave it. As we awaken to the need for deep transformation, we look for a framing statement to guide us. Some are drawn to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, others to a proposed Earth Constitution, and still others to a document we know as the Earth Charter. Only one of these serves our current need. The UN Sustainable Development Goals consist of a list of goals to be achieved through sustained economic growth. They neither mention nor explain why, after 70 years of impressive economic growth, we have more people lacking access to the basic essentials of a satisfying life than we did back before we embraced economic growth as a defining priority. The proposed Earth Constitution assumes, without analysis, that a global government with authoritarian power will serve people and planet in ways current national governments do not. A third option, the Earth Charter, presents an eloquent statement of why we are in crisis. 
It recognizes our interdependence as living beings and our responsibility to one another. It then provides a set of guiding principles that align with the wisdom of our ancestors, widely recognized ethical principles, and the observations of contemporary science. The Earth Charter is the only one of the three documents that even attempts to explain why we are in existential crisis and to provide a coherent and systemic framework for action. We must move beyond the limited frameworks of our past as we find our way to a new civilization, an ecological civilization that reflects our true nature as living beings. To explore these issues in greater depth, visit my website, davidcorton.org, and look for the document Ecological Civilization from Emergency to Emergence. Use it and share it in any way you wish. Kurt, back to you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. David Corton. So we're going to go now to a discussion that I had recently with Dr. Rianne Eisler, beginning with me saying a bit more about her important work. So let's join that discussion. Well, what a privilege to be talking again with Dr. Rianne Eisler especially when the topic is the challenge of our world going global in a healthy and people-friendly way. From her iconic The Chalice and the Blade to her books on global change, like The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics, and The Power of Partnerships, to her most recent book, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, co-authored with Dr. Douglas Fry, Dr. Eisler has been a leading thinker and activist on the challenges of dominance hierarchies, the issues of women and children, and on our understanding of partnership consciousness. So Rianne, in tune with this subject of global unitive healing towards a world that works for all, tell us about the breadth of your work and vision and what you assess as both our most significant challenges and the essential directions we need to take in addressing them. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you, Kurt, and I am going to try to really condense. Um, and I'd like to start with how I came to do this work, because as you know, my work does nothing less than re-examine our past, our present, and most importantly, the possibilities for our future. And I have a great deal of passion for that work, not only as a writer and a teacher and a uh, certainly uh, an, a, an activist um, and all the other things that I do, but also because of my own early life experiences. Uh, because I was born in Vienna at a time that in terms of the conceptual framework I've introduced was a massive regression to the domination side of what I've introduced as the partnership domination social scale. It was the rise to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then in my native Austria. So from one day to the next, my whole world as a child was rent asunder. And my parents and I, I was a child refugee, really, from uh, a 
people who were going to kill us. And we escaped by just a hair's breadth to the industrial slums of Havana, where I grew up uh, experiencing uh, still another uh, injustice, you know, the tremendous poverty that we temporarily, thank goodness, sank into, but also the, tem the tremendous poverty around us. In a Cuba that at that time, the gaps between the haves and have-nots were just horrendous. And so that led me to the questions that animated my research. Does it have to be this way? When we humans have such a capacity for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, why has there been so much uncaring, so much insensitivity, so much cruelty and destructiveness? Is it inevitable uh, or are there alternatives? And if so, what are these? So fast forward really to my work, because obviously I didn't try to answer these questions when I was a child. I mean, I tried, but I couldn't. Uh, that led me to look at what is needed to create this world, this better world, not a perfect world, not a utopia, but what I've called a pragmatopia, a practical, better place. And it became very clear to me that I could not answer these questions through the lenses of conventional social categories like right-left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, capitalist, socialist. If you think about it, there have been in every one of those categories oppressive, repressive, violent regimes. Moreover, and this is really central not only to my work, but to our chances for a real global unity, for a real cultural transformation worldwide. If you look at these categories, they, as well as really most studies of society that we have been taught, they either ignore or marginalize nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. So, uh, as I said, well, Einstein said it the best. He said, you cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. And we know from linguistic psychologists that the categories provided by a language uh, channel our thinking so that it's almost impossible to envision better alternatives. And what we need is not to just put on band-aids, you know, add-ons, to a fundamentally imbalanced system, but a real systems transformation. And yes, we have to, in order to achieve this, take into account what we today know from science, from neuroscience, about the importance of childhood in nothing less than how our brains develop, which of course means how we feel, how we think, how we act, including how we vote whether we vote for strongman leaders, because that's what our culture or subculture as mediated by our families, religion, education, etc., make us feel comfortable with, especially in times like ours of rapid social change. Yeah, great, Rianne. So given that background, tell us now about what your discoveries have been and what your conclusions have been as you followed this life's research. Well, as I said, what I found is that transcending 
all these conventional categories of right, left, religious, secular, capitalist, socialist, etc., are two configurations, two social configurations, patterns that keep repeating themselves historically and cross-culturally. Naturally, there were no names for them. I mean, and, and yes, these two categories include the social position of the majority of humanity, women and children. And you'll see that uh, they transcend our old ways of thinking. Uh, if you have a domination configuration, whether it was Hitler in Germany, Stalin in the former Soviet Union, Khomeini in Iran, the Taliban, ISIS, you know, these are extreme examples. They all orient to the domination side. They are, have authoritarian top-down rankings in both the family and the state or tribe. Family, family, family. Secondly, gender. They all see as a top priority to either maintain or impose an authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, highly punitive family. Now, this is not coincidental. It's because it is foundational to domination systems. And they all have built in a great deal of abuse and violence as is needed to maintain these top-down rankings, whether it's man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, etc. Uh, but we do have an alternative and it's deeply rooted in our past. My book, uh, the first book reporting the findings from this uh, research that is still going on, by the way, uh, through the Center for Partnership Systems and other avenues, uh, was the chalice and the blade. As you noted, it is iconic. In fact, it just came out in Spain uh, in a new Spanish translation, Calis y Espada, and there's been a virtual media storm. El país, why? Because I've always been ahead of my time, but the times are catching up and people are discovering that we need new consciousness, new thinking, and that our old ways of thinking, including our old categories, I mean, think of in terms of gender, the only two alternatives in our language are either patriarchy or matriarchy. They're two sides of a domination coin. For goodness sakes, either mother's rule or father rules. There is no partnership alternative. We, we see partnership systems not only for millennia in our prehistory and our history in some uh, contemporary indigenous communities, not all indigenous communities, but many of them. And we certainly see, I just uh, wrote an op-ed, uh, which I think is really very fascinating, the uh, country that is number one in the international happiness reports uh, has the lowest gender gaps always in the World Economic Forum's global gender gap reports, but also has very high rankings always in the World Economic Forum's global competitiveness reports. And it's not coincidental that 
almost half of their national legislature is female because there are systems dynamics that are made invisible in our conventional categories, which ignore gender, which ignore childhood. What happens is that as the status of women rises, so also does the status of the so-called feminine, caring, caregiving, nonviolence. So these countries, I mean, like Finland, has a very successful business sector precisely because they have invested heavily in caring policies, caring uh, for people, child care, uh, high, uh, always number one in education internationally. And yes, they have far more gender equity, including very generous paid parental leave for both mothers and fathers, because this is not a matter of women against men or men against women. It is a matter of getting rid of our old, really of coming out of what I've called the domination trance and recognizing that caring is a human value and that in our post-industrial era, think about it for a moment, when economists keep telling us about the need for this high quality human capital, well, neuroscience shows that whether or not we have these flexible creative uh, people who can work in teams rather than just taking or giving orders who are resilient, it largely hinges on, yes, the quality of care and education children receive early on. So I've identified in this work four cornerstones that we must shift from domination to partnership. The first is childhood. The second is gender. Uh, we need gender equity, not as a, quote, women's issue, but as a key social issue because we have had this hidden system of gendered values in which caring, caregiving, nonviolence, the so-called soft or feminine have been devalued. We have to unpack that. Then of course, economics. Uh, in my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, I introduced the first time the term caring economics and that was in 2007. And now the president of the United States uh, is using the term. He's also using the term investment in human infrastructure. I coined that term. But what we need is not e getting rid of both cap either capitalism or socialism. No, we need both government policies and we need uh, what we call free enterprise, which we don't happen to have, you know, with all the monopolies, all the domination economics we have, but we have to go further to a caring economics of partnerism. And last but certainly not least, we need new stories and new language. And once we have these foundations, rather than just trying to deal with symptoms, we can build that more unified, more equitable, more sustainable world for us all. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Rianne Eisler, for sharing that valuable time with us. It leads so well to our next discussion with Drs. David Sloan Wilson and Paul Atkins. Of course, Dr. David Sloan Wilson is the author of several important books, which have been the basis for mainstream science's recognition of the new cooperative and globally altruistic view of evolution. Most recently, David's book, 
this view of life, completing the Darwinian revolution. And then David joined Dr. Paul Atkins, a revered psychologist, in writing Pro-Social, using evolutionary science to build productive, equitable, and collaborative groups. The book that has brought psychologists, sociologists, and economists into the discussion. So when they speak of pro-social, which is an antonym of anti-social, they are speaking of this new mainstream movement dedicated to a positive future for our planet. So we join David and Paul with David first addressing my question to him, David, where do you land on this question of going global? And then he and Paul continue the discussion. So let's go over to that. Well, when it comes to going global, I think the, a great place to start is with the fact that the very concept of going global was unimaginable um, even a couple hundred years ago. Um, back then, I mean, the social entities were just smaller. They were large. They might be your nation or your religion, um, but they were never the whole earth. I was talking just a little while ago about a wedding I just attended in which my niece, who is Jewish, that means I'm not Jewish, but my sister married a Jew. So that was, and then uh, their daughter has married a Bolivian and everyone's happy about it. So uh, that kind of globalism is something which in a sense has already happened just because so much is global. And when, uh, and when you're just interacting with people from around the world, such as in a Zoom meeting or, or something like that. Another thing I like to point out is that in my little tiny city of Binghamton, New York, in upstate New York, in the public school system, over 20 primary languages are spoken. In my little tiny city, there's been so much movement that the kids that are interacting with each other speak 20 different first languages. So globalism has already arrived, and that makes it so easy for people to think about the whole earth as uh, an appropriate unit. It should be our group. The idea that we're first and foremost human beings and citizens of the earth is something that comes more and more naturally to us. And, um, uh, and yet that wasn't even remotely the case uh, several hundred uh, uh, years ago. The Baha'i faith is arguably the first faith that was truly global in its, in its expressed mission of including all nations, all faiths. Before that, it was my nation, my religion, pitted against others. So, uh, so uh, that's, where we, that's where we begin. Do you have anything to reflect upon, Paul, on that? Yes, I'm wondering... Um what your perspective is, it seems to be somewhat fragile. We've also seen moves away from globalism towards more nationalism, for instance. Um, and uh, there are times where um, one wonders whether globalism is an allo unalloyed good. Uh, do you have any reflections on that from the point of view of multi-level selection theory? Um, yeah, absolutely, Paul. And um, so globalism is practised does not work out for the common good unless unless any at any scale if the if your social identity is not working for you as a member of that identity well you're not going to have much allegiance to it 
And so uh, to the extent that globalism as it currently exists, such as the global economy, isn't uh, benefiting the common good, then people will abandon that notion of globalism and they'll seek some other social identity, which they think is going to be operating more in their interests. And so globalism has to be, has to be truly equitable and, and fair, uh, spread its benefits, all of that stuff, and, and which it manifestly is not. So that, that does not contradict what I said earlier. What I said earlier is we, we could wish for globalism, we can kind of see it, but as far as how well it's working for everyone, then uh, so many changes need to take place. And so that actually is the next thing we should be getting to, is how can we actually achieve the equitable society at the global scale that would make people want to think of themselves as first and foremost humans and citizens of the um, of the earth. And on that point, I think that uh, a very important point to make is that governance must be multi-level. It cannot be only global. In the first place, we're starting out, in the first place, humans have always had multiple identities and always will. Every time we do something with some set of people, that is a group with an identity and a purpose and a social organization. And everyone participates in, in many, of, many of those. So, and, and that'll never change. So whatever your current nationality, religion, ethnicity, gender, um, uh, your local uh, uh, groups, all of those need to also exist and to be strong and well-working. And, but of course, to be coordinated with the higher good in mind. So, so this is where multi-level comes in, not just, not just global. And psychologically and, and sociologically, it's actually the smallest unit that's most important. The small group that's functionally, that's appropriately structured doing meaningful work where you can be known by your actions um, and so on and, and so forth. You could think of that as the cell of, uh, of a multicellular society. And so what are the points of leverage for this kind of change that you're pointing to, David? What, 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 what are some, some of the things we could do? Well, the, the most important point I make there, especially for the audience of people that are likely to listen to this, is that uh, there needs to be both inner transformation and outer transformation. And the inner transformation is the kind of, the kind of reflection that, co that causes an individual to become compassionate. Um, and so um, um, mindfulness-based training, meditation, um, um, that sort of thing is intended to accomplish this, this, um, this um, inner transformation. But so many times it ends there. And the idea, the unspoken assumption is, is that once you become compassionate-minded, then you're just, then you're, inspired to do compassionate action. And so therefore our job is done. And, and that's what's emphatically not the case because in order to act compassionately in an effective way, all sorts of external things need to be done in terms of the groups we form, how they are structured, how they are nested within each other, 
it's so very complicated. There has to be this this um, outer transformation in addition to um, an inner transformation. And that is, I think, often the limiting factor. Just to be compassionate-minded is not enough. And if you go out naively and you try to act upon your compassion in a Darwinian world, that's pretty dangerous. I mean, you're likely to be hurt. And so, and so the only ethical thing to do is to create social environments that enable compassion to win in a Darwinian world is the way we phrase it, right? The way we phrase it. Um, uh, the good news about evolution is, is that, is that um, all things associated with goodness can evolve. The bad news is special conditions are required. And so we need to be smart about providing those special uh, conditions. And that's a major social engineering project. Lately, I've been thinking about it as like building a cathedral. And that's, a, for me, a powerful metaphor because a, a cathedral, of course, is a spiritual, building it is spiritual, but the cathedral is a physical structure, a massive physical structure, can require decades and centuries to build. So kind of a modern cathedral, which doesn't look like any real cathedral, in fact, might not even look like a structure at all, but it will be a structure. And, um, and so I think that's a, a metaphor we should, we should use more, in my opinion. Mm. Could you say a little bit about how ProSocial is contributing to uh, this effort of going, going global? Well, of course, everything I said is, is motivated by what we're doing here in ProSocial. What ProSocial is doing is an amazing convergence of so-called hard science. I guess this is just audio, so you can't see me using scare quotes when I say hard um, uh, science, but basically, you know, the science of evolution um, with, with, uh, with a, a spirituality. It is that joining so that we can accomplish both the inner and the outer uh, transformation. We could combine the wisdom of um, spiritual traditions around the world, around the world. This is sometimes called inter- spirituality with the wisdom of the uh, of the sciences. And so we're doing that and we're doing it in a very practical way. We're one of the only organizations I know that is actually dedicated to working and to make it happen basically, to make it happen at a worldwide scale, to take, to take globalism so seriously and to have a blueprint that nobody else really had because most of these scientific developments are so new that even the smartest and most open-minded, well-read polymaths that are trying to work towards global unity actually don't know about this, don't know about this, because that's how new it is. And so this gives us a sense of you know, great excitement uh, that uh, we have so much to share and to put into, put into uh, action and to, um, and to basically... Um, catalyze this um, this process so it takes place in years rather than decades, centuries, or or not at all. And that is possible in the internet age. Mm. Thank you, David. I think that's probably a good place to wrap. And was there anything else you'd like to say? No, only the uh, 
so happy to partner with the people who are putting on these events and uh, and so on. They've become great friends and allies. And so uh, I hope this uh, little interview is a, was one step towards uh, what, we are, what we're all striving to achieve. Well, thanks so much, David and Paul. And your comments are a perfect segue for us going over again for just a minute to a message from the publisher Simon & Schuster, Beyond Words, about the Evolutionary Leader's award-winning book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. So, welcome back to The Convergence. This is your host, Dr. Kurt Johnson. Now, following on the discussion by Drs. David Sloan Wilson and Paul Atkins, we're going to speak next to Dr. Glenn Martin about one particular view of what a new world order might look like from his book, The Earth Constitution Solution, Designed for a Living Planet. So over now to Dr. Glenn Martin. Dear brothers and sisters living together on our precious planet Earth, my name is Dr. Glenn T. Martin, I'm president of the World Constitution and Parliament Association, WCPA. WCPA is creator and supporter of the Constitution for the Federation of Earth. Let me talk a little bit about the background of our Constitution. We human beings need urgently to transform our world into a living community of love, justice, peace, mutual respect, and sustainability. During this 21st century, humanity is facing its ultimate test, its ultimate crisis. We face the possibility of our own extinction through nuclear holocaust and or climate destruction. What has brought us to this terrible condition? Where have we gone astray? 
How can we regain our centeredness, our love, our hope for a better future? A host of thinkers today, from cosmologists to theologians to philosophers, proclaim that this miraculous universe, over its 13.8 billion years of existence, was somehow designed to produce us. Beings capable of both self-awareness and awareness of the deepest ground of being allowing us ultimately as people to live with a sense of fullness and meaning of life without this terrible struggle that has been human history so far. There is something very special, something cosmic about being human that we are in danger of losing forever. We're at a kairos, a turning point in human history. The ground of being, or however we wish to name this, depending on our background or tradition, has produced self-aware creatures capable of love, justice, peace, and ecological harmony. The Upanishads of India declare Vaishudaiva Kudumbakam, the world is one family. Yet we find our 21st century wracked by wars and militarism and hate and fear. We find our planetary ecosystem collapsing under the weight of human exploitation, greed, and intransigence. We have divided our precious planet into nearly 200 militarized sovereign units competing economically, militarily, culturally, struggling with one another with national, national secrecy. We have created a globalized economic system of absolute winners and losers with 1% of the population owning more than 50% of the planet's wealth, while the bottom half of humanity struggles to satisfy their most basic necessities like food and shelter. We need to discover a way out of this suicidal trajectory. We need more than empty slogans or ideals. Such ideals are a dime a dozen. We need a concrete means of conversion, a practical blueprint, that shows us how we might govern ourselves with justice, peace, freedom, and ecological sense. And that is why hundreds of world citizens worked together throughout the late 20th century to write the Constitution for the Federation of Earth. Beginning with the first Constituent Assembly in 1968 and completing the Constitution at the fourth Constituent Assembly in 1991, they created a document of surpassing brilliance and wisdom, a document today translated into many languages and supported by our worldwide organization, WCPA. The Constitution understands that we cannot merely tinker with the old system of toothless treaties among militarized sovereign nation-states and unrestrained corporate greed if we want to survive. Rather, we must truly unite under the principle of unity and diversity, as it plainly states in its preamble. True unity and diversity cannot be achieved unless we unite our world under a common law and common vision of human civilization. The preamble declares that we are on the verge of a new age when the Earth's total resources shall be equitably used for human welfare. But this can only come about if we bring the rule of democratic law to our planet. As I have been writing and teaching for years, democratic world law is the 21st century form of love. 
If love, justice, and peace are to supersede hate, injustice, and war, then we must truly unite under this 21st century form of love. That is the role of the Earth Constitution. It completes our human community while protecting universal human rights. It puts all of us on the same page of democratic cooperation and freedom. It sets up a process to demilitarize the world safely and equitably, as well as providing a carefully designed set of institutions for protecting and restoring our planetary ecosystem. As I wrote in my most recent book, The Earth Constitution Solution, it truly gives us a design for a living planet. The Earth Constitution presents an integrated set of basic design features beginning with the grassroots participation of the people of Earth from 1,000 electoral districts worldwide in the House of Peoples. People participate directly in the governing of our planet. It's a key to human liberation. Secondly, in the World Parliament, there is the House of Nations with one, two, or three representatives from each nation depending on its population. Nations participate democratically, just as their populations participate directly in the Earth Federation government. With the third house of the World Parliament, we have 200 representatives from around the world chosen for their expertise, wisdom, and leadership abilities. And the three houses together complete the World Parliament, giving humankind the capacity, the tools, for the first time ever in human history to govern themselves rather than being governed by militarized power centers, super-rich oligarchs, or corrupt corporate lobbies. Four main agencies complete the world democratic governing framework, the world judiciary, the world executive, the civilian world enforcement system, and the world ombudsman. Each of these is run by five elected leaders, one from each continental division of the world, giving us true diversity and preventing any one person from being too much in power. The Ombudsman is a worldwide agency dedicated to protecting human rights and serving as a watchdog on the government itself to ensure that the Constitution is obeyed and everyone is equitably protected and embraced by the love that is genuine democratic law. Altogether, these and many other design features of the Earth Constitution tell us something about what love could and should look like on our planet. Protected rights for all, sufficient basic necessities for everybody, no more waste of 1.8 trillion U.S. dollars per year on militarism and war, as is now the case, justice and freedom for all within the framework of our planetary common good and ecosystem protection. All this is love in action. Democratic world law is indeed the 21st century form of love. If human beings are growing into a consciousness of a destiny bequeathed to us by the ground of being, if we are truly made in the image of God or our one human family, then the Constitution for the Federation of Earth is the next great step in the actualization of our cosmic destiny. We need to be thinking in terms of our common destiny, our common humanity, our common civilization, and our shared precious planet that supports us all. Democratic world law is that 
key to the transformation of human history. We need to ratify the Constitution for the Federation of Earth. As world-renowned thinker Irvin Laszlo declared, quote, the achievement of the Earth Constitution solution would mark a milestone on humankind's evolution into a true planetary species, unquote. Please join the movement for democratic world law. Please visit our web- websites for more information, www.earthconstitution.world and www wcpa.global Thank you all of you who are concerned about our common future on the precious planet Earth and blessings to all creatures great and small. Let us democratically unite our planet to enable that synergy that will truly change the course of human history. Thank you and God bless. Glenn, thanks so much for that overview of the Earth Constitution vision. Now, having talked with all these thought leaders, I asked Dr. Richard Clugston, a seasoned expert on all the United Nations and international meetings and processes concerning the Sustainable Development Goals, and a member of the original Earth Charter Commission, if he could join us and give a bit of a summary of everything that he's heard so far. So he said yes, and that also sets the stage for me to close out after that. Uh, with Dr. Elena Mustakova, who's the author of Global Unitive Healing. So I was able to reach out to Dr. Clugston, and this was our discussion. Thanks, Richard, so much for joining us with all of your expertise from the Earth Charter, the UN Sustainable Development Goals process, and your participations in so many of the international meetings and review processes that involve the ongoing challenge of globalization. Now we've asked you to do a bit of a wrap up with me on what you think are the major challenges we are facing and the directions needed to address them. Well, thanks, Kurt. I'm gonna pose four questions. Our answers to them, I believe, will help shape our contributions to going global in a healthy and successful way. First, a couple of orienting quotes from two of the previous speakers. Wilbur emphasizes the urgency of, quote, helping individuals to grow up all the way to integral levels of their spirituality so that their awakening to unity consciousness will be a real, true, full unity, which is actually inclusive, not just as a stated ideal, but as a direct and real human actuality, end quote. Wilson, drawing on multi-level selection theory, states, quote, if we want the world to become a better place, we must choose policies with the welfare of the whole world in mind. We must become planetary altruists, end quote. Thus, today's evolutionary imperative is to develop this truly inclusive unity consciousness, the inner transformation, and to adopt economic and social policies that actually care for the well-being of the whole community of life on Earth, the outer transformation. Now for the four questions and some beginning answers to them. One, what do we envision as the necessary characteristics of a world that works for all. 
many of us have critiqued the damaging characteristics of our current economic and political systems. For example, consumerism, materialistic reductionism, dominator hierarchies, nationalism, and common enemy politics. And we have articulated worldviews, values, and practices that would help create more inclusive, compassionate societies. Question two, what policies and institutional structures need to be in place for the, such a world to come into being? To varying extents, we have spelled out the changes needed in economics, governance, education, and business that would be required to realize our visions of a world that works for all. For example, Wilson and Martin have gone into great detail on practical design principles and institutional structures for large-scale, polycentric global governance. A major task for us is to develop more detailed policy proposals that spell out the goals, objectives, timelines, and tasks necessary to accomplish the outer societal transformation. In addition to better forms of global, global governance, we could prioritize policies for a new economy that replaced the current focus on short-term monetary GDP growth with measures of sustained well-being for all people in our planet. Also critical is reforming our educational systems to cultivate unity consciousness, global citizenship, and planetary altruism. The third question, who needs to be on board with the worldviews, values, policies, and structures we are promoting to really make this transformational change happen? In other words, how do we bring our vision and policy recommendations into the mainstream debates on economic, educational, and governance reforms? especially in the current efforts to refine and implement the sustainable development goals, targets, and indicators in order to make Agenda 2030 more capable of transformative change. In each of these arenas, there are powerful interests that seek to preserve business as usual. However, there are also many in civil society, even some in the private sector and governments, that are advocating for development policies guided by ethics and spiritual values. We will need to identify and work with these kindred spirits in order to deepen and implement a development agenda that creates a world that works for all. Question four, how do we find common ground with these kindred spirits? This common spiritual ground lies in affirming that the primary goals of human development are, one, to have, in Wilbur's terms, quote, a direct realization and experience of the living, vital, conscious, groundless ground of being, and two, to feel intimately united with the whole community of life on Earth. While religions and spiritual organizations differ greatly in the details of their belief systems, most do stress the importance of pursuing and experiencing their versions of this inclusive 
unity consciousness. Think of Jesus's two great commandments of Buddhist enlightenment and compassion for all sentient beings. And of Lakota prayers to the great mystery with concern for all our relations. Schweitzer termed this as quote, reverence for life, end quote, where reverence carries the connotation of odd humility in the face of a vast and mysterious power. We can unite behind advocating for this new and old understanding of what development is really for, which is a much needed correction to the excessive materialism and nationalism of the dominant development agenda. And by getting up to speed on the current policy debates on governance, economics, and education, we can competently contribute to policies with the welfare of the whole world in mind. These are daunting tasks, both more urgent and more possible given today's global situation. As Martin Luther King Jr. often reminded us, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, end quote. Fortunately, there may well be some assistance for making this needed evolutionary transition from sources we barely comprehend. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Richard Clugston, for that summary of both pertinent questions and suggested answers about where this world might likely go toward a world that works for all. Well, it's totally fitting that we would conclude this first of three Voice America specials on the process of globalization with Dr. Elena Mustakova, the author of Light on Light Press's new book launching August 24th, Global Unit of Healing, Integral Skills for Personal and Collective Transformation. We centered our discussion in this special on Toward a World that Works for All with Ken Wilber's foreword to the book Global Unit of Healing, in which he spoke of our global journey toward wholeness and our unfolding toward opening up, opening up to entirely new lines of development. So I want to close out with Dr. Elena Mustakova, the author of Global Unit of Healing, closing with her own overview of this amazing challenge and opportunity that our planet is embracing. Elena brings to her authorship of Global Unit of Healing a broad base of knowledge and experience across the whole phenomenon of globalization, which include her previous books, Critical Consciousness and Toward a Socially Responsible Psychology for a Global Era. So, Elena, wrap it up for us. Thank you, Dr. Kurt Johnson, and to all our speakers today for this comprehensive analysis of the decisions and choices we face, especially since these decisions have to be made by collective humanity in this decade, not in the indefinite future. We have now heard the new report of the Intergovernmental Climate Change Panel, which makes clear that we have a decade for concerted action and transformation of our ways. It is that very urgency that propelled the writing of global unitive healing. My sense that ordinary people are feeling so overwhelmed by the intensity of the challenge before us, 
that most people do not even know where to begin. Our speakers today were clear. We have to begin by owning our choices and their significance right here and right now for our lives and, with, and for the survival of our planet. This call for the awakening and the spiritual maturation of humanity, for its mobilization towards creating a united planet that can sustain life with justice and equity for all, was first raised in the mid 19th century. And it came with a clear warning of the severity of the crisis we would face if we do not unite, clean our act and mobilize our efforts. From its very emergence, the Baha'i faith raised an integral interspiritual vision, which called on every faith tradition, as well as on science to assist the maturation of humanity. The various aspects of this vision were elaborated today by illumined thought leaders of every professional and spiritual background. It is so heartening to witness this convergence of ideas and efforts with a vision released into human consciousness 170 years ago. Clearly the time has come and the time is now. Dr. Ken Wilber's brilliant breakdown of what human spiritual maturity means and involves can help every person take stock and consider where their choices land in this critical historical moment for the planet. Doctors Jean Houston and Annalois Mitzman capture the human imagination through powerful fiction that helps us experience the universal, continuous, and eternal nature of consciousness. And it brings home the reality of a new template for humanity, the seeds of which are already within us. A renaissance that we are on the verge of if we were to choose it. New ways of seeing, relating, and being. Ways that our hearts are already calling for. This new consciousness of our oneness as a human family, the hallmark of the new evolutionary era of growing up, proclaimed and set in motion by the twin mystical figures of the Bab and Baha'u'llah in 1844 and 1863, has been most powerfully expressed, as Dr. David Corton reminded us, in the Earth Charter. This document, which represents the most universal consensus in our collective history, not only helps us be clear about why we're facing such a severe global crisis, but it articulates the ethical principles and guidelines that will steer us forward. In my 2014 volume, I examined it as the foundation of a psychology restructured to respond to a global era. Central among these principles and guidelines is the elimination of relationships of domination and their replacing with relationships of partnerships that honor the nobility of every human and draw on consultative processes of decision-making. This dual principle of justice and unity and its expression in gender, family dynamics, class, race, and economics, first raised in the mid-19th century, 
was spoken of beautifully by Dr. Rianne Eisler, who has dedicated her life's work to advancing this vast cultural shift toward mature relationships on every level. Doctors David Sloan Wilson and Paul Atkins shared their important practical work on achieving this cultural transformation through multi-level social restructuring, starting with communities of inner and outer transformation. Their endeavor brings evidence from evolutionary biology to support what has been already a 100-year-old Baha'i blueprint of social engineering practice of building diverse and united communities of a new kind, communities that self-organize and build up democratically all the way to world, world governance councils. Dr. Wilson correctly identifies the Baha'i faith as the first truly global faith inclusive of all identities, overcoming partial identities pitted against each other, emphasizing the oneness of religion, of humanity, of human evolution. When he uses the metaphor of building a cathedral, I am reminded of the houses of worship Baha'is built all over the world, open and welcoming spaces for people of all faiths and convictions as future centers of multi-level governance. The pro-social approach to cultivating planetary altruism is practical and impactful. Dr. Glenn Martin spoke of his life's work taking the concept of multi-level governance and unity and diversity all the way to the creation of a world parliament and constitution. His approach to democratic world law as the 21st century expression of the law of love, which transcends the extreme waste of human and planetary resources in competitive militarization, was named as the inevitable future for humanity, a world federation of states, at a time in the 19th century when that looked like a distant utopia. Today, Dr. Martin's description of the three houses of a world parliament, a world judiciary, world executive, world civilian system, and world ombudsman are manifestly the most feasible way to think in terms of our common destiny. Dr. Richard Clugston brought a lifetime of experience in UN sustainable development and review processes on globalization to his brilliant summary of the central questions before us. Questions that move us from envisioning a world that works for all to developing concrete policy proposals and finding common ground. He rightly ended with the one thing that can activate all of us at this critical point in a decade that will define the course of the planet finding common spiritual goals, common ground. That is what my book, Global Unity of Healing, helps the reader find. A personal journey from our separate neuroses to personal and collective freedom through the conscious and concerted development of skills for a new era and of an evolutionary spiritual language that uplifts and unites us for the tasks ahead. So thank you very much, Dr. Johnson, 
for bringing together such an illustrious team to respond to the call of this urgent time in history. So, Elena, thank you so much. And we wish you the very best on the August 24th launch of your new book, Global Unit of Healing, Integral Skills for Personal and Collective Transformation. Everyone can find the book at Amazon or any of the other online booksellers. And a big thank you to the other guests who have joined us on this exciting program. A big thanks to Ken Wilbur, author of The Forward to Global Unit of Healing, and to our amazing commentators, Drs. Gene Houston, Anna Lou Smitsman, David Corton, Rianne Eisler, David Sloan Wilson, Paul Atkins, Glenn Martin, and Richard Clugston. Now, we're going to be joining you again very soon with a second Voice America special where the noted thought leader and several-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, will be joining me, Dr. Glenn Martin, and others in discussing the challenge of an Earth Constitution. And later in August, or perhaps early September, depending on how the Voice America schedule rolls, we'll be joining you for a third special, this one on the challenge of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And on that special, we're going to be joined by such luminaries as Greg Braden, Dr. Jude Curavan, Audrey Kitagawa, Denise Scotto Esquire, and SDG experts and commentators, Dr. Richard Cluxton, Richard Bowl, and others. So in the meantime, enjoy our free e-magazines that are on so many global issues, and they're free at www.issuu.com slash light on light. That's www.issuu.com slash light on light. And remember to find us throughout the month of August and into September for these specials on the Convergence at Voice America. Just Google the Convergence at Voice America. So thanks and be well until we are together again soon. I search my way through wreckage, try to find a peace to save. Was it a hurricane? Was it rain? Was it a warm tsunami? an insult to the brave While all our hearts are mortgaged and our minds are media slaves The world is warming up as we earn Mother Nature's wage Just inside She is taking Just in time.